Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. When it comes to income support, uh, we have made a decision. Uh, we have decided uh, when it comes to this budget in particular, there is a, a, is a particular focus on those doing it toughest um, and that's what makes up our cost of living package. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today, I'm joined in the pod cave by Amanda Rishworth, the Minister for Social Services. This week, the Senate passed the Strengthening the Safety Net Bill, enacting key budget pledges, including an increase to JobSeeker. But while the Albanese government pursued Scott Morrison over robo-debt, it faced calls to do more for income support recipients and raise the rate further. Rishworth is also at the centre of government plans to reduce the harms associated with problem gambling and to eliminate family and domestic violence, so we'll also discuss these topics. Welcome, Minister Rishworth. Great to be with you. Now, the Senate passed the Strengthening the Safety Net Bill on Wednesday. Uh, Which income support measures are in that bill and how big an impact will that make on the cost of living crisis? Well, look, uh, what the bill had was a number of different initiatives designed to strengthen the safety net. So there was a $40 increase for most working age payments, including student payments and job seeker. And that uh, will now come into effect on the 20th of September. Um, what also happens on the 20th of September is a number of these payments are indexed. So, for example, for Job Seeker, that actually means a, a $56 increase per fortnight. But the bill also had, for example, a significant increase in rent assistance, uh, particularly uh, focused on the maximum rates of rent assistance, those people already paying the maximum rate. There's an increase uh, so in, in that. But it also expanded the single parent payment um, for those on single parenting payment. Obviously, many would know that that single parent payment cuts off and you get put onto job seeker when your youngest child turns eight. That's now when your youngest child turns 14 recognising those extra responsibilities continue as a parent. The final change is actually uh, there is a higher level of job seeker for those that are 60 and over, recognising the extra barriers to work. Under this bill, that higher rate has been reduced down to 55. So there's a range of different measures within this bill um, to make it a stronger safety net. And uh, we think that these measures together, combined with our other cost of living relief will make a difference to many people. 
Now, why did Labor reject the Coalition's proposal to double the income-free area for JobSeeker, which would allow JobSeekers to earn up to $300 a fortnight before the payment is reduced? And could that be revisited down the line or do you not want people earning a few hundred a fortnight to be on the payment? Well, firstly, I'd say that what the Coalition's amendment did was to remove the $40 base increase and replace it with an income-free area increase. And and what that would have meant was that 77% of people on JobSeeker don't actually use the income-free area that is already there. And that's because they're on JobSeeker because they can't find work, they're facing a range of different barriers to work. And that might be whether that's foundation skills, language skills, um, you know, maybe English isn't their first language and so they find barriers there. Maybe it is sickness or maybe it is discrimination. So there's a lot of people, uh, uh, 77% of job seekers, that don't actually use the income-free threshold. So when the choice was to give more to everyone uh, on the payments, um, Labor chose that. Uh, what the coalition said is take that away and only allow people uh, to uh, get the benefit if they earn more. So that that uh, proposition uh, was a, a, not a in addition, it was uh, an either or. And so we disagreed with that. In terms of barriers to work, I think um, obviously for people on JobSeeker, we want to make sure that uh, ultimately they are able to move off the payment into work um, and secure well-paid work. And so part of our employment white paper is to have a look at those settings. Um, But addressing some of those barriers, whether it be foundation skills or discrimination, is really what we need to do at the heart of some of our challenges when it comes to supporting people move off JobSeeker. And this was, you know, I think an attempt to play politics, quite frankly, um, and uh, make it about, you know, you only deserve extra support if you can work on JobSeeker rather than recognise being on JobSeeker means often you can't find any work at all. Mm, So the amendment would have disadvantaged JobSeeker recipients who are not working at all. But now that the increase is through, is that the income-free area going up, something you could come back to? Uh, Well, to be honest, we're looking right across the board uh, at a range of different areas, getting to the heart of what the barriers are through our employment white paper. And so, of course, social security settings are part of that. uh, But what we want to do from my perspective, uh, is really look at how we support people, that there's a strong safety net uh, when people need it, but they're able to transition off that safety net and into well-paid, secured jobs. And that should be uh, what the aim is, and that's certainly my aim and what we're exploring through the, the employment white paper. Mm-hmm. Now, the Senate debate featured calls to increase JobSeeker, which will now go up $56 a fortnight, 40 of which was the increase in the budget and $16 is indexation of, I think it's 2.2%. Um, but inflation has been a, a good amount higher than that for some time. What would you say to the view that, you know, the increase in JobSeeker appears generous but might have been chewed up by inflation? Well, JobSeeker is indexed uh, twice a year. And so the last indexation was actually in March where an indexation, a six-monthly, so effectively there's a six-monthly indexation applied both in March and September. So there was an indexation of, I think it was 3.7% applied in March. uh, And so JobSeeker did increase then. Uh, The $40 though is about not just applying 
of the consumer price index, but it was a base rate increase. So it was about increasing the base rate and ensuring that uh, the consumer price index for that six months was applied afterwards. So so look, we uh, know it's tough. I'm not going to pretend it's not tough to live on income support. Uh, we know it's not easy. Um, but of course, this income support uh, is part of a, a broader system of supports. And I would say that the government hasn't just invested in uh, increasing the base rate of job seeker, but there is increases, as I said, in rent assistance. There's obviously also energy bill relief if you're on a concession card or getting family payments. Um, there's also, for example, cheaper medicines, the tripling of the bulk billing incentive. And this helps with the cost of living of some of those expensive things like healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the RoboDebt Royal Commission uh, recommended against a general compensation scheme uh, for victims, but said the best thing the government could do is raise the rate of job seeker. Does that provide any fresh or new impetus uh, beyond the existing commitment that was legislated this week? Well, well we are raising the rate of job seeker. That's exactly uh, what we're doing. Um, in terms of the broader Royal Commission, I mean, the Royal Commission was actually a really, really important important uh, mechanism to examine um, robo-debt. I mean, that is a really shameful uh, part of our history, partly because of the intention of the former government uh, was to particularly demonise people on welfare. I mean, one of the comments made by the Royal Commission was really about how politicians have an important role to play by not uh, demonising people on welfare. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but um, so I don't want to put words into the commissioner's mouth. But there certainly was this sort of role that politicians can play. And, and I think when it comes to robo debt and the recommendations, there are a lot of recommendations. And we're, of course, going to work through those recommendations um, uh, and they're important. But when it comes to income support, um, we have made a decision. Um, we have decided uh, when it comes to this budget in particular, there is a, is a particular focus on those doing it toughest, um, and that's what makes up our cost of living package. But Catherine Holmes' report came out in July, which was af- after the budget that contained um, that increase. Just thinking, you know, the coalition has accused Labor of trying to get advantage out of the Royal Commission and beating up on Scott Morrison over adverse findings, which he rejects. Wouldn't it enhance the government's credibility if it was seen to be taking action on a central recommendation in relation to JobSeeker? Well, well, you've got to look at the RoboDeck Royal Commission's recommendations across the board, and I say, I think you know, we we have been rightly, I think, very critical of the previous government uh, for what they did. I mean, you know, when we hear Alan Tudge, we're going to hunt you down and we're going to put you in jail. The fear uh, in the climate that created, but also the disdain for people uh, receiving income support, the not recognising many people are vulnerable on income support. It was the tone as well as the policy of the previous government that was particularly galling, I think, think to many. And um, so I think in terms of the Royal Commission's response, we will work through those methodically. We did hold the Royal Commission uh, to get a good path going forward um, and we'll examine all of those recommendations in due course. 
You still see complaints uh, that although income averaging might be dead, which was the core plank of robo-debt, you still you know, have Services Australia engaged in, in debt collection. What are the rules about how debts are calculated now and, and when and how welfare recipients w- will be pursued? Well, obviously, recovering debts are part of the system. Um, and so, you know, sometimes overpayment can occur accidentally. People haven't, uh, haven't reported their income correctly um, or people might have deliberately gained the system. What RoboDebt Royal Commission said is that this sense of fraudulent people is actually a small amount. Uh, that was the evidence that was presented to the Royal Commission. So there always is, uh, needs to be a, a robust, robust process, a re, you know, integrity in the system. Um, but, uh, for example, um, and this does sit with Minister Shorten, but uh, he has said uh, that they are not using external debt collectors now to go and uh, you know pursue people that may owe debts. I think I think what we've got to do is characterise it in the way it should, and that is if there uh, are debts and they are uh, debts that are owed, then uh, that they are that the integrity is in the system, but not in a sense where it is all about budget savings, which is what it was for the coalition. It was designed uh, to improve the budget bottom line, and it was done despite advice that it may not be legal. Um, It was done relentlessly. And I think the language that characterised around this, including uh, um, articles where Scott Morrison bragged that he was a tough welfare cop and the comments that uh, former Minister Tudgment, I think really go to not just the actual process, but the tone and the motivation by the previous government. There's a cleanup going on in relation to a separate problem, income apportionment, uh, which the Commonwealth Ombudsman found was an incorrect interpretation of, of social security law. What happened there and how is that going to be fixed? Yeah, look, um, this was brought to my attention and, of course, my first question is please uh, inform me that it's not going on today and that's exactly what I was told. This is a really complex problem um, in which... Uh, uh, is sort of a situation that's been going on from between 2003 to 2021, in which um, you a person uh, reports their income, and um, and previously, uh, if you uh, previously you were meant to report on what day you actually earned that income. So on day one, uh, you needed to say I earned this amount by working three hours, and this amount by working four hours. If your fortnight didn't absolutely align uh, with your payment fortnight, your Centrelink payment fortnight, and your uh, employment fortnight, and you couldn't uh, report to the Centrelink uh, which days you weren't what, what money. Uh, a method was used to sort of try and work out how to apportion uh, that earnings over over that fortnight. Um, the way that was done was um, found to be. Um, illegal um, and wasn't wasn't uh, appropriately um, done. It is complex because on some weeks um, it, you may have been uh, underpaid because of that method. On other weeks you might have been overpaid because you did actually earn the income. Uh, it's just which fortnight was it apportioned to. So, look, it is, it is a historic issue. It is an issue that needs to be resolved. And so I've been really clear there is some conflicting legal advice around the resolution and the interpretation of, of if you can't use this 
uh, method called apportionment. What method do you use? Um, so there is some legal issues to be confirmed. But what I've been really clear is I want to see the legal questions resolved as soon as possible so there's some certainty around this issue. I hope that made sense. It's a very complex issue um, and a very complex uh, uh, legal interpretation, but I've tried to do it the best I can. Yeah, robo-debt income averaging is a year's income split over 26 fortnights and this one is if you can't work out which which fortnight is in you know which 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 one do they apportion it to but yeah it's it's, yeah, it's, so it's, it's it's a tough one to wrap your head it, around it's a very technical one because this wasn't about automatically calculating debts and trying to find debts it was when you reported your income if you couldn't say which day you earned it on and keeping in mind this back dates to 2003 sometimes you know there weren't the sophisticated pay slips that show what days you earned money on you know, that it was a method to try and work out which fortnight you'd attach the money to. So it is quite a complex, a different issue, but one where the legal is not happening now and has not happened um, since mid-2021. So I do want to really reassure people that um, um, it is just not happening now. But it is, there is some legal questions around that and, and, they, and I've made it clear they need to be resolved as quickly as possible. I want to ask about gambling reforms. Before we get onto the proposed ad ban, uh, what are the other policies that you're enacting for harm minimisation in terms of the harms of um, problem gambling? Yeah, look, um, problem gambling and harm minimisation is just really critical. This is particularly for online wagering. Um, uh, most people would see the online wagering ads on TV. Um, what I've done as Minister coming to government was actually um, hold the first ministerial meeting of ministers responsible with state and territories and the Commonwealth because it is a shared responsibility. And what I've done, I, I held that meeting and we got on as a group to finish the consumer framework. There were four outstanding measures left in what was called the consumer framework. These were 10 actions that were taken, uh, that were agreed to with states and territories to actually address um, online um, wagering. A couple of those have been to bring in the new evidence-based taglines. So everyone may have remembered Gamble Responsibly. Um, uh, believe it or not, that the evidence shows that doesn't really deter people from gambling. Um, so there are a number of taglines that were researched, things like you win some, you lose more, uh, that now feature in ads. They are rotated on a regular basis to keep them fresh. And in longer ads, there's a call for action about where you can get help. So they were, that was a really important uh, a change that was made um, that I was able to make. Um, also, we've now uh, almost ready for BetStop, which is a self-exclusion register, will be coming online very shortly. Um, and that allows you to register rather than have to register that you don't you, you don't want to gamble on a whole range of platforms. You can go to just one spot and register so that you are unable to to uh, bet. Before that was actually, it took 72 hours um, for that to sort of, uh, for this pre-verification or uh, to kick in. So if you signed up with a betting company, you could bet for 72 hours before uh, BetStop was perhaps enforced or other uh, verifications on your identity were made. We've just brought that forward and saying that companies have to pre-verify, make sure the person's a real person and actually not on the national 
National Exclusion Register before anyone can place a bet. So that's been an important uh, important decision as well. More training for people um, and also activity statements. So individuals get monthly activity statements now showing how much they may have won or lost um, and so that people can keep track of, of what's happening. So those are some of the things that we've done. But outside that consumer framework, we've also announced with Minister Rowland that we're banning the use of credit cards for online gambling um, because, of course, that when you go to the, the pokies on land base, for example, you can't use your credit card uh, to bet on, on those sorts of things. So we, are, we don't think it's right that you should be going into credit um, for gambling. So we're working through that and we hope to have uh, that implemented sometime this year. So there's a range of measures we've already taken, but obviously the committee's recommendations, which I must say are 31 recommendations um, on a range of different areas, gives us some food for thought about where we might go next. Yes, so on that uh, proposed ad ban, the Parliamentary Committee chaired by Labor MP Peter Murphy recommended a comprehensive ban phased in over three years. Now, you and Communications Minister Michelle Rowland haven't haven't endorsed the ban. She's called it an evidence base for action. You're saying food for thought. What's holding you back from saying that that's where you'd like to end up? Well, we've got to work through the processes of the implications of all the recommendations and we've got to work with the states and territories across the board and um, and not the advertising recommendation, but uh, 27 of the recommendations of that report actually involve or uh, impact the states and territories. So we've got to work through that. We're taking a responsible approach to this. We want to make a difference in this area. Um, we want to, and our, and our guiding principle is about harm minimisation. And so um, we'll be working through all the implications of that um, and, you know, work to make sure that we deliver a comprehensive re- response. So, look, I, I think this is a, a, a report that's been considered very thoroughly, um, but we've also got to make sure it works and we'll be working with our state and territory colleagues and stakeholders right across the spectrum uh, to look at how we respond in the best way possible with the guiding principle of minimising harm. I noticed you said harm minimisation, not harm reduction. Is an ad ban desirable to minimise harm if it can be done in a way that won't threaten the financial viability of broadcasters? Well, of course, um, there's plenty of evidence around a whole range of of issues around um, uh, what actually minimises harm and what prevents harm. And so we're looking right across the board at that. Um, You know, there's a range of um, uh, things like making sure, like our activity statements, for example, is making sure people are aware of how much they're actually losing. Sometimes people can get caught up and don't actually know how much they're losing. So that measure was about harm minimisation. Um, uh, our our taglines on our ads, our call to action, where to get help is part of that harm minimisation. So uh, right across the board, there's a lot of actions we can take. Obviously, um, advertising is is one of the recommendations in this committee and we're working through that to look at what we can do. But uh, my state and territory colleagues have been very, uh, have demonstrated they're willing to work in a really cooperative manner when it comes uh, to this. And uh, by the end of the year, we will have, or by the end of September, we will have implemented the consumer framework. And so the question of what else can we do is absolutely on the table. 
Now, Free TV Australia has called for caps on the frequency and number of gambling ads and called for compensation in the form of reduced spectrum fees. Uh, What else are they asking for in the consultations and is that an acceptable compromise position or do do you think that the government response is going to go further than that? Well, look, I can't uh, preempt that. Obviously, um, you know, particularly Minister Rowland and the government is consulting uh, with a whole wide range of stakeholders um, around, uh, you know, uh, how we implement the government's report, uh, sorry, the committee, how we might implement the committee's report, what recommendations may well be ones that we take forward. So it's right across the board. We will continue to consult and come up with a considered and a comprehensive um, uh, position on this issue. What about inducements? I know that Anthony Albanese and Michelle Rowland both expressed personal views on uh, the number of ads, but I haven't heard anyone say whether they think it's right that you know gambling companies can can offer you free bets uh, and 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 you know sweeteners like that. Are those problematic? Well, well, look, certainly the committee um, pointed not just to ads but to things like inducements, to uh, a whole range of the ability for uh, governments to collect data to really understand the problem. So uh, there were a lot of different issues canvassed and, as you rightly put, actually only one of the, the 30 31 recommendations were actually about advertising. So there are a lot of areas that we do need to uh, do need to look at um, and a lot of these do touch the states and territories. So I am very keen to work with the states and territories around uh, what, what do we need to address, what are the priorities. Um, we did that coming to government by working to implement the last four measures of the consumer framework, um, but added to that with the credit card ban. Uh, So we'll continue to work through those issues um, uh, across the board. On the 28th of July, you and State and Territory Ministers on the Women's Safety Ministerial Council committed to finalise action plans under the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children. What is the timetable here and what actions to end violence within one generation will be taken? Yeah, so we did um, absolutely acknowledge at that meeting that uh, we are still seeing unacceptably high levels of violence against uh, particularly women and children when it comes to family and domestic violence. And uh, really, we've been working together to put together our two action plans, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander action plan, and also our uh, uh, mainstream action plan, if I can call it that. So this is uh, of an issue of national importance. We are finalising those action plans um, as we speak. Um, But uh, I must say we haven't waited for the action plans um, to uh, direct how much investment or to allocate investment to this critically important issue. Both in the, between the October budget and the May budget, um, we've put an extra $2.3 billion um, into family and domestic violence. Um, and that is a significant allocation from the Commonwealth. Obviously, this, these action plans make sure that the states and the territories and the Commonwealth are all investing funding, driving 
you know, driving change. Um, and so that's what these action plans are about is the cooperation. But we haven't sat on our hands when it comes to addressing this issue. Money is flowing now to the states um, when it comes to our commitment to put more frontline workers on the ground. Money is flowing uh, around uh, to the states around um, uh, keeping their services going because the National Partnership uh, did end um, and the previous government did not provision extra money after the 1st of July. So our May budget made sure there was funding provision in it. So there has been a, a lot of work already done in this area, but the action plans do provide a sense of focus and a sense of evidence on where we need to go and how we're going to get there. What can you tell us about the progress implementing the safe and supported report and how is greater input from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians going to improve outcomes when it comes to children in out-of-home care? Yeah, look, this is pretty revolutionary, I think. Um, it, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but uh, for the first time at our community ministers meeting, which has all the state and territory ministers along with the Commonwealth, we agreed for equal shared decision-making when it comes to uh, out-of-home care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And what that meant is we signed off on, I guess, operating guidelines that would suggest to, to in terms of future decisions going forward, they will be made uh, with equal numbers of government ministers along with equal numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders in this area of child protection. It will, the group will be co-chaired uh, by myself as the Minister for the Commonwealth and by uh, a Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leader. And, and this really keeps going the spirit in which we developed uh, the, the action plan on uh, Safe and Supported, which is the Child Protection Action Plan for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And this really goes to the Closing the Gap uh, Priority Reform Area number one. This is about shared decision-making. This is about having a seat at the table for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for us working this out together. And when we were going through that process, one thing really occurred to me, and it is connected to this debate about the voice, is that I haven't found this as a minister difficult. I found this incredibly helpful. Um, I've, uh, I would like to commend SNAKE, who have worked very hard on an evidence of what is called the Aboriginal Child Placement Principles. That's that's about how we make sure that these principles are adhered to. That's been really helpful work uh, that will help us achieve the target to reduce the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out-of-home care. So I can see this shared decision-making is really, really powerful and important and it's what is going to mean the difference between shifting the dial on out-of-home care. So it was pretty significant. Um, you know, there isn't many occasions where a ministerial council has then uh, agreed to uh, share that decision-making responsibility directly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders with expertise. And this is the first time I'm aware that it's been done, but it really is on the path to reconciliation. I think that's all we have time for. Thanks so much for joining us, Minister Rishworth. Thank you. This episode was produced by Joe Koning. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We'll be back next week with another episode of Australian Politics.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.